Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, folks. Guys, you are in for such a treat. If the first service was any indication, this is going to be completely awesome. Today, we have the pleasure of having a special guest speaker. His name is Jay Warner Wallace. He's allowing us to call him Jim. He is a cold case homicide detective and the author of Cold Case Christianity, a homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. I know that many of you already bought a copy. You've read that copy. Here's the deal. Uh, Jim was actually a committed atheist for the first 35 years of his life, okay? So he's only been a Christian for a year now, all right? But... That was a joke. It's okay. Uh, he used his skills as a homicide detective to actually examine the reliability of the Gospels. And here's what's cool. His professional investigative work, some of you, I was talking to you at the earlier service, some of you have seen his work uh, as it's been repeatedly shown on NBC's Dateline, as well as Fox News, all sorts of media channels. And he relies on basically two over two decades worth of investigative experience that he brings to the table. So Jim provides the audience, he's going to provide us with the tools that we need to investigate the claims of Christianity, and not only that, to make a convincing case for why it is that the Christian world perspective not only makes sense, but it's so true. So here's the deal, guys. I need you to help me give Jim Wallace a warm, liquid church welcome. Can we thank Jim for joining us here today? Thank you. Thank you. Wow. You, you know it's bad when uh, the pastor who introduces you is young enough to be like your son. That's a bad thing, okay? And then he's teasing you about your age as though this is actually not my natural hair color. This is a weave that makes me look more uh, distinguished and therefore more reasonable on the stand. Uh, my name is Jim Wallace, and I've been working in Los Angeles County for uh, quite a number of years. I was born uh, in the family of law enforcement. My dad was a guy who was a cop before me. I was born in his academy in 1961. And then my son was born in my academy. So all three of us are officers at the same agency. We've worked the same kinds of cases. And so for the last 52 years, if you called our agency and you asked for Jim Wallace, there's somebody there to answer the phone. And uh, now for the next 30 with my son, he'll be there. So we're trying to get 80 years of phone answers. I know my son feels pressure to have a son he can name Jim Wallace. We're like the George Foreman of uh, law enforcement, okay? <laughs> we use the same name over and over again. But anyway, I've been doing these cases for the last 12 years that are unsolved murders. And unsolved murders, you know, we, there's a statute of limitations on every crime, but there's not a statute of limitations on murder. So we can go back after these cases years, years later. And so I've got cases from 1979 to 1988. And these typically are cases that ended up on, ended up on TV because they're interesting. They're old cases. And so we have one more that we're doing, and then I'll be completely done. So I'm almost out the door. Uh, and until then, I want to share with you some of the techniques that we use working these kinds of cases. I go around the country now and share with other believers and non-believers. We'll be at Rutgers on uh, Monday night talking about the case for Christianity. And is it reasonable evidentially? And how would we ever know? So I want to share with you three generations worth of law enforcement experience. Not all of us are Christians. My dad's still a very committed atheist. But we've employed the same kinds of skill sets, same kinds of tools. And there are lots of reasons why we might reject a truth claim. But I want to help you at least to process through evidential claims. 
Now, how do you even know how to use these tools? Well, I think there are some similarities between what we use in working cold cases and what we use to examine the Christian worldview. Think about it. Cold cases are events in the distant past, usually 30 years or so ago. And so they are old events, historical events. And we don't typically have any living eyewitnesses who can tell us, you know, I saw him do it. If I had that kind of a piece of evidence, that's called direct evidence, by the way, I wouldn't be a cold case. It would be a solved case, right? It would have been solved years ago. So I don't have those. And I also don't have cases that have great evidential uh, pieces like DNA or uh, fingerprints or some other great forensic evidence. I have to make these cases in an old-fashioned way. I have to build them indirectly on the back of a lot of little pieces of information which might not seem all that important to you, but when added up and thought about cumulatively, they're very powerful. And these are called cumulative circumstantial cases. This is how we investigate cold cases. And if you think about it, this is very similar to how you might investigate the claims of Christianity. An event in the distant past, no living eyewitnesses, no forensic evidence. We have to come to the truth of it by assembling the indirect evidence. What evidence do we have available to us? How would we even begin such an investigation? Well, you have to have certain tool sets in mind. And one of the most important tool sets you can have is understanding the difference between what's possible and what's a reasonable inference from a circumstantial case. So in order to help you kind of process that kind of thinking, we're going to start with a criminal case this morning, okay? This young man has been accused of killing his girlfriend with this baseball bat. He's bludgeoning her to death. But how would I know if he did it? Well, I could go out and just ask him, hey, did you do this? Maybe he'll tell me the truth. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, do you honestly think he's going to tell me anything I could trust? Especially if he's been lying about it for 30 years. Do you think all of a sudden he's going to be honest with me? Uh, Probably not. I'm going to need something better than that. What if I had an eyewitness? What if I had a witness who showed up who could say to me, you know what, I know exactly what happened because I saw him do it. Oh, that would be good. But I don't know if I can trust her. Well, look, I'm out my front yard. I'm trimming my roses, and I hear this noise across the street. My neighbor's always fighting with her boyfriend. And sure enough, she's fighting again today. And I look up, I can see through her plate glass window. They're struggling again, and she's yelling, and he's yelling. And before long, he's smacking her. Then he takes a baseball bat out, and now he's clubbing her with it. And she's down, and he keeps coming on. She's still swinging. And then he gets in a car and drives off. Wow. Well, how do you know who it was? Well, I've known this girl for like 20 years. She grew up in this neighborhood. We, all of our families know each other. We do holidays together. We, Fourth of July, we barbecue together. We do Christmas together. I've known her entire life. And the guy who she's dating, I've known him just as long. I know his entire family. He grew up here, lives four doors down. He was wearing the shirt that I gave him for Christmas two years ago. That would be pretty powerful, don't you think? I think if she holds up to cross-examination, this one piece of evidence, this, by the way, is called direct evidence, this one piece of direct evidence would be enough, I think, to compel most of us to consider him our, our suspect in this case. But what if I don't have this situation? What if, in fact, the scenario is just slightly different? What if he's actually not this open about his commission of this crime? Instead, he's wearing a mask. Huh. That would change things. Now she could say, well, you know, he fits the general description, but I couldn't tell you for sure if it's him because he's wearing a mask. Now, if I had a suspect in mind who fits the general description, would you want to convict him? How many of you would be willing to convict him right now? Not very many. None. (laughs) Okay. So how do we make this kind of a case? We don't have a direct witness anymore. Well, we make it indirectly. 
using what's called indirect, also known as circumstantial evidence. It gets a bad name in our culture. You'll hear something on the news will come up, and they'll say, oh, it's just a circumstantial case. It's going to be hard to win that one. It's just a circumstantial case. Would you please stop saying that? All my cases are just circumstantial. Every one of them. Every one of these cold cases are circumstantial cases. These guys are all sitting in jail tonight. So these things are powerful. How we come to the truth circumstantially kind of looks like this. What if I went out and talked to him, and I asked him, hey, what were you doing yesterday at the time of the murder? And he gives me an alibi. And this alibi seems good at first, but when I check it out, it's not, it's, he's lying. He's lying to me about his alibi. Plus, he fits the general description of the suspect. Hmm. So let's do a, let's do a search warrant. Go to his house, and he has this very suspicious murder weapon at his house. He's got a baseball bat. Don't you think it's suspicious that anyone would keep a baseball bat in their house? No, see, no one thinks that's suspicious here on the East Coast. If you do this talk in Vancouver, Canada, I've done it there, and people will say to me afterwards, you know, it would be very suspicious if anybody had a baseball bat in their house here in Vancouver because no one plays baseball here in Vancouver. I said, really? I wish you would have told me that at the beginning of the week. I've done the talk like 10 times this week <laughs> in front of your Canadian audiences, not knowing why they're like going, I don't know. So now in Canada, when I go back, I, he's not, he doesn't have a baseball bat in Canada. In Canada, he's got a hockey stick. <laughs> it makes much more sense there. But the point I'm trying to make is here, there is something suspicious about his, his weapon here. Because it's all nicked and dinged up in the fat part of the bat. Not like he's been using it to hit baseballs or softballs. He's been using it as a club. So when you test it for biological material, there's no, bio, no blood, no tissue, because he's soaked his bat in bleach. Now, how many of you soak your baseball bats in bleach? Is that a little bit suspicious to you? I do this talk all around the country to all kinds of age groups, including young people, like eighth graders. That don't change anything. Believe it, your eighth graders can, can pull up their, their level of understanding. Believe it, they, they do all the time. And when I do it in front of eighth graders, one, year, uh, one girl raised her hand. I can think of a reason why he would bleach his baseball bat. Oh, really? What is that? Well, what if his dog peed on it? <laughs> I thought... I will keep that in mind as we go forward with this. Do you have a dog, sir? Oh, yes. Does he pee often? Okay, well, that might explain that. But aside from that, I mean, why are you bleaching your baseball bat? So you do another search warrant, you discover a lot of things. And one of the things you discover is a pair of jeans. Well, everyone's got jeans. But his jeans are dirty and muddy. But that when you luminol them with luminol, it's a chemical that actually luminesces under certain lighting, they luminesce at the knees. Now, that usually is going to be either body fluids of some nature or cleaning product of some nature. And it's not body fluids. You test it, it's KM negative. It's not blood. It's simply detergent that he has used to spot clean something on his knees. Now, what's interesting about that is the pants are filthy. So whatever he's trying to get off, it's not mud or dirt, because there's mud and dirt everywhere else. He's trying to get something else off those pants. What's he trying to get off? I don't know. But something to think about. And there's no sign of forced entry at the house. So whoever got into this house to do this murder is either somebody that she knows and let in, or it's somebody who had a way to get in. There are three people who have a key to this house, the victim, the victim's mother, and the crazy boyfriend. And he's crazy. If you do an interview with him and you tape it, he'll tell you they've got a very tumultuous up-and-down relationship. Oh, it's terrible. He loses his temper a lot. He does have a tendency to smack her around, and it doesn't mean anything by it. He's always sorry afterwards. He always apologizes. She always forgives him. But that's just who they are. That's just who his relationship is like. I mean, this is who he is. He's violent. And it turns out that on the day of the murder, he found out that she was cheating on him. Can you imagine? Who would cheat on this guy? Don't you all wish this was your son-in-law? But, you know, he finds this out, and he loses his temper, and he says, yeah, I smacked her. 
And I, you know, I got really upset, and I threatened to kill her in front of her friends. But I didn't kill her. I just threatened to. Hmm. Well, witness says he had a certain kind of boot on. And when he ran out of the house, she noticed that boot because it was unusual. The side of it had a leather band that was vertical. And you do some research, there's only one store anywhere in the county that sells those kinds of boots. They're the one manufacturer that makes them. They're not popular. Oh, 20 to 30 pairs have been sold in the last two or three years. At the search warrant, who do you think has got one of these pairs of shoes? Our guy. Hmm. One in 30 relationship. One in three relationship. Do you see the problem here? How many of you right now think this is a very good candidate for our murder? Raise your hand. Don't do this. Give me the whole hand. There you go. Hang them. Exactly. (laughs) Now, some of you have got your hands down because you realize there's this black space that Jim has not filled up yet. And until Jim fills that up, I'm not going to commit one way or the other. So let's fill that up right now. If you'd have got there just a few minutes later, he'd have been dead because he's writing a note before you got to the search warrant. And in that note, which you discover on the counter, it says that he is so remorseful for something he just did last night. And that, he says, I, I can't take it back. It's horrific. I wish I hadn't done it. Uh, what can I do now? I'm upset about it. I can't live with myself. I exploded. And sure enough, now I feel like I want to kill myself. But he doesn't say he killed his girlfriend. I feel pretty good about him as a suspect. Because I've got pre-activity, post-activity, I've got lots of reasons that kind of make the odds in favor of him as a suspect. If I told you that the victim said, or the witness said, that, yeah, when he drove out, he drove away from the location, and he was in an unusual car. Uh, 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. How many of you even know what a 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Raise your hand. Everyone look. Keep your hands up. Everyone look. These are the old people in your congregation. We need to find a place for those guys um, so they won't mess up our demographic, okay? Yeah. Well, you do some research, and, you know, there's only like two Volkswagen Carmen Ghia's in the entire state, okay? This is New Jersey, right? I mean, how many of these things do you survive in New Jersey? They hardly survive in California, where we have nothing but the heat to, to kill them, right? But sure enough, you open that garage door on that search warrant, what do you think he's got? He's got one of those two Carmen Ghia's in his garage, and it's the right color. This, by the way, is a 1972 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. In case you weren't sure where that was, that's what it is. Now, you see, we make this case not based on an eyewitness account now, direct evidence. We have to make the case indirectly based on what's known as circumstantial evidence. Now, it's still quite possible that he is not guilty, but it's not reasonable. And that's the difference we're looking for. It's not beyond a possible doubt. We're asking people to make a decision beyond a reasonable doubt. And this is the much more reasonable is that he is the one causal factor that best explains. Now, if I was doing this in front of a a jury, there wouldn't be eight pieces. There would be 80 pieces. And you'd have to explain those 80 pieces through 80 alternative individual unrelated explanations or there's one common source, one common causal factor that explains all the evidence. And that, of course, is his involvement. So do you see how we would actually say this is the most reasonable inference from the evidence? Make sense? And that's how we build circumstantial cases. We surround our suspects with the evidence that demonstrates that these are the most reasonable circumstantial conclusions. And by the way, judges tell jurors all the time that they are not to consider circumstantial evidence as though it's less probative, less powerful, less relevant, less true. When you consider these things, they're given the exact same weight as direct pieces of evidence. There are times when I would rather have a circumstantial case than a direct case. Let me tell you why. Witnesses want to lie sometimes. They will lie to you. They want to help out their brother-in-law who's accused. They want to be on dateline. Who knows? But they don't always tell you the truth. 
Now, circumstantial evidence does not intentionally lie to you. You could be incorrect about how you've inferred what you've inferred reasonably from it, but it's not as though the evidence is intentionally trying to trick you. That's the power of indirect cases. Now, it turns out that the case for Christianity is built on what claims to be eyewitness testimony, direct evidence. Why should we trust it? I don't trust any witness. I don't care if it's a biblical witness or any other witness. I was a pretty committed atheist until I was 35. And when I walked into that church, it was the first evangelical church I had ever stepped foot in for anything other than a wedding or a funeral. I don't have Christians in my family. I have no Christian background. My dad is still a committed atheist. My mom was kind of a cultural Catholic growing up. And so I didn't really know the stories. didn't really know. I didn't have a foot. I have no what church is still, to me, pretty crazy. This is crazy. Cool, but crazy. So I really had to kind of take a look at this. And I said, this is how we assess witnesses in a jury trial. We have 14 questions that we allow jurors to consider when thinking about whether a witness is reliable. And it breaks down into these four large categories. And to make it easier, I can give it to you in just single words. Are they present? Can they be verified? Have they been honest and accurate over time? And are they biased? If they pass in these four categories, we're to consider them reliable. So the question is, could we apply this kind of thinking to the apostles and ask the question, are the apostles reliable? Let's try to do that. I'll show you. Today, we're going to do all of this in very short time. I'm looking at my timer right now. And I usually take about 90 minutes to do this. We're not going to do that today. So I'm going to give you pieces, but I won't be able to give you the whole puzzle. But we're going to start with a couple of areas that I really had skepticism about as a non-believer. The first one is, how do I know that those people who wrote this text wrote it early enough to have been eyewitnesses in the first place? Here's a case from 1974. This is my dad walking a suspect to the courtroom, a suspect who has been accused of killing a girl on Thanksgiving Day 1972, a 10-year-old he kidnapped from right in front of her home, assaulted her, killed her, dropped her off on Oxnard, a couple of uh, counties north of us. So here we are with this case, and and this is the guy who confessed to all of it. A thousand pages of transcript of every horrific detail. My dad hates this picture, by the way, just hates it, because he feels like he looks like a greasy kind of 70s polyester detective in that. Of course, that's what he was back in the 70s, but he doesn't like it. And he hates the fact that he looks like he's got a big butt sticking out there, you know. But that's not, that's his gun. That's not a butt. That's his gun under his jacket. I don't carry a gun when I travel. I carry something even more powerful, the Word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword. There it is. It's much easier to travel with the Word of God than it is to travel with a... Uh, by the way, if you have to look at your holster to put back your gun, you're not practicing enough. So that's important. Anyway, this guy was being walked across because he was accused of this. And a thousand pages in which he talks about every horrific detail, every horrific detail of how he did this murder. None of it's true. He wasn't even there. We eliminated him by blood evidence on the eve of the trial. Why would he confess to something he didn't do? He had some issues. There's no doubt about that. But honestly, he got more, probably more attention in this case from the two officers here who were talking to him about this case than he probably got in his entire life. But if someone's not there, they can't be your suspect. They also can't be your witness. Whether you're there matters. And that's the question I had as a skeptic. How do I know that these uh, um, gospels are eyewitness accounts that actually were authored early enough to have been authored by eyewitnesses? Look, This is the life and ministry of Jesus. And here's the council of Laodicea where the church comes together and tries to decide what do we trust as authentic eyewitness accounts? What is going to be the canon of Scripture? A lot of years between these two events, 330 years. If the gospel authors worked on this side of the timeline, we should not trust them to be eyewitness accounts. Because if they wrote them out here, they're writing them hundreds of years late. Everyone who was alive at the time to tell somebody else that's bull 
would have been dead by this time. If you're going to lie, you have to do it either late in time or out of the region. Otherwise, somebody who was there and actually knows this stuff is going to call you out. So I always wondered, where was this fall? There are lots of teachers out there right now, people who I respect, like Bart Ehrman, who are agnostic when it comes to Christianity, but are writing books about the biblical authors that would cast doubt on not only how early they were written and whether they've been transferred correctly over time, transmitted, whether or not they actually are written by the authors they're claiming to be written to them, whether or not we've lost something important, or whether or not what we have hasn't been modified in a way. And anyone who makes a claim that these writers are writing late in history, I think if that's true, we should just stop meeting like this because it's, it's pointless. If, on the other hand, we think that the authors are working on that time of the time, that end of the timeline, well, the closer we get to the events, the more confidence we can at least pass the first test. It doesn't mean they're telling us the truth. They could still be lying, but they're lying early, and that's harder to do. So I wanted to know, where do I put this? Where does, it, where does it fit? I think there are good reasons to accept that the authors are writing on this end of the timeline rather than this end of the timeline. And here's why I say that. I build the case circumstantially. I just taught you how to do that. Let's do it together. Where in Scripture is the first century history after the ascension of Jesus described? That's in the book of Acts. Very good. All the Sunday school graduates say it together. Book of Acts. Now, who writes the book of Acts, Sunday school graduates? Luke. Close enough. Okay. <laughs> Can we edit that out for the next service? Or if we don't, this is a different... Luke writes the book of Acts. And anywhere in the book of Acts does Luke describe the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? We know from history. Josephus writes, in fact, about this. The Romans came in. They, they, they besieged uh, Jerusalem. They surrounded it. They cut it off. And they eventually starved out the citizens. And they broke down the walls. And they sacked the temple. It happens in 70 AD. If I'm writing fiction about Jesus, it seems to me if I'm Luke, I want to put this in. Because after all, in Matthew 23, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. At least now he would appear to be an accurate predictor, wouldn't he? I think that'd be pretty cool. No, it's not in the book of Acts. Luke does not talk about that at all. Why wouldn't he put that in there? Also, the siege before the destruction of the temple is also missing from the book of Acts. I mean, even Peter talks about the suffering of believers. Why not put this stuff in that caused them to suffer? Why not include these details of history in the first century? They're missing from the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, Paul is still alive at the end of the book of Acts. Isn't that odd? I mean, he's in captivity and he's still alive. We know when he's martyred around 64 to 67. Peter is martyred about the same time and his death is not described by Luke either. As a matter of fact, James, the brother of Jesus, dies in Jerusalem in 61 AD and that's also missing from the book of Acts. Now listen, Paul, I mean Luke, you see you got me believing it now too. <laughs> Luke does not have any problem describing the death of Stephen or the death of John or of James, the brother of John. These are minor players in the book of Acts. The three most important players, Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, when they die, he doesn't say anything? What's that makes no sense to me. Why is all this stuff missing from the book of Acts? I think the most reasonable inference is that the book of Acts is written prior to any of this stuff happening. And if that's the case, I will put the dating of Acts just one year before the first missing event. Now, I can add more to this case. I think that actually makes it more compelling. We know that Luke writes two books. He writes, this, is, this should be a little bit easier, the book of Acts, and the other book that Luke writes is Gospel of Luke. Very good. Very impressive. 
That, you know, actually, we know that occurs first. Of the two, the Gospel of Luke, he writes first. So, and how do I know that? Well, I know that, Sunday school scholars, by looking here in the book of Acts, first chapter, because he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, so that former book is the Gospel. Now, interestingly, I'll date the Gospel at 53. Why? I think that's not that harsh, to put it that early. I think it's pretty reasonable. Here's why. We know in Paul's writings to, the, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, written around 63, 64, that he says to Timothy, and I thought this was great to see this when I first saw it. Timothy, you should pay some respect to your elders here, really the church, because after all, Scripture tells us you should respect them. He says, in 63 to 64, he says, for the Scripture says, oh, cool. What is Paul using as Scripture as early as 63, 64? I wanted to know. He's going to tell you. And he quotes one verse from Deuteronomy. Oh, that's the Old Testament. He's always using the Old Testament. But here he quotes a verse, the worker deserves his wages. Where does that come from? That comes from the gospel of Luke. He's quoting Luke's gospel as early as 63. So we know that Luke's gospel is written as early as 63. But I put it a lot earlier. I put it at 53. Why? Because there's another book he writes to the Corinthian church, Paul does, called 1 Corinthians. Even the most ardent skeptic like a Bart Ehrman would say this is a Pauline book written very early, as early as 53 to 57. And in this book, he's telling the Corinthian church, who are a bunch of derelicts, okay? These folks don't know what the heck they're doing. They're always making out. They're sleeping with their family members. They're doing the Lord's Supper, partying like a rock star. Everyone's getting drunk. And Paul's writing and saying, hey, guys, guys, time out. We taught you how to do the Lord's Supper. Go back to the way we taught you. And he tells them the way he taught them. He reminds them, and he quotes one gospel story about Jesus at Lord's Supper. Who is he quoting? Turns out he's quoting in this passage. By the way, anytime I saw this, I said, well, do this in remembrance of me. Where does Jesus say to do this in remembrance of me? It's not in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, John. They all talk about the Lord's Supper, but it's not in there. It's in Luke's gospel. He again is quoting Luke's gospel. Luke's version of the Lord's Supper, he's quoting as early as 53 to 57. That's why I think it's reasonable to date that this is available to Paul. And that means it's written. Now, if it's not written and it's just a concept, that's okay with me. If I have an eyewitness who was there at the crime 30 years ago and wasn't even interviewed for 15 years, and that's when he gives his statement, the question is, what did he see 15 years ago? And we know, because we're reading it. So that tells me that I have reasonable and good reason to date this early. Interestingly, in the first chapter that Luke writes of his gospel, he tells Theophilus, the same guy he's talking to in the first chapter of Acts, he tells Theophilus, you know, Theophilus, I wasn't an eyewitness. Okay, I'm a good detective. I've talked to all the eyewitnesses. I'm an investigator. And so for you, Theophilus, I'm going to write an orderly account so you can have confidence. You can know the certainty of the things you have been taught. I myself have carefully investigated everything. I'm writing an orderly account? Like, duh. If you write an account for me, I'm thinking it's probably... Or- what kind of an account is like, you know, scrabble pieces just thrown on the floor? You figure out what it says. No, I'm thinking it's probably in the right order if you're writing an account for me. So why would he say orderly? Well, because there's an account out there that's not orderly. Papias says in the first century that Mark's account, written as Mark sat under Peter in Rome and listened to Peter's teaching, Papias in the first century says that Mark's account is accurate, but not necessarily orderly. He says that in the first century. Wow. It seems that Luke's familiar with that account, and now he's got it in the right order. And who do you think he quotes word for word more than any other source? Mark. And that means Mark's account has to precede him. And most scholars would put Mark's account first. 
Given this is my kind of chronology, and I'm building this case circumstantially with all these pieces, any one piece does not stand in isolation of any other piece. Make sense? I think a reasonable early dating. This puts us within 12, 15 years of the event. When eyewitnesses are still alive and those who saw it and reject it would still be there to rebut you. Also, by the way, why wouldn't they just do this immediately? Why wouldn't they write this down the very first year Jesus ascends? Why would they wait 15 years? I mean, I'd be like Instagramming this thing right away. Here's Jesus feeding 5,000. Here are my feet on the Sea of Galilee. I'd be doing something, right? <laughs> That's not what he waits. Why does he wait? Well, if you read through Scripture, you're going to see that for the most part, there's a sense that the people who were eyewitnesses, like Paul and others who wrote the letters, seem to think that Jesus is going to return in their lifetime. Interestingly, when James is martyred in 44, I think we see the first appearance of Gospels. Why? I think people started to realize, we're not getting out of this alive. Better write this down. I think the idea that this is an early document for me was satisfied as I studied through this. But I had other skepticism. Now, I'd like to be able to tell you all the ways that I think Scripture is corroborated and verified by outside sources or by internal evidence or through archaeology. I've written a lot about this in the book, but unfortunately, we are now down to just a few minutes, so I, don't wanna, I can't get into that in all kinds of detail tonight. I'll be at Rutgers, though, on Monday night if you want to join us. But I can tell you that this other issue was bigger for me as a skeptic. I didn't trust that they were early, and I didn't trust that they hadn't changed over time. Jesus might be a smart guy, a first-century rabbi, but he was not God. And all that miracle stuff, that never happened. That had to be inserted late. This is the legend of Jesus growing over time. How do I know if that's true or not? Here's a guy we took to jail. We were on Dateline three weeks ago on a Sunday night, probably, if you saw the show. Killed his wife in 1981. And when we investigated it in 1981, we thought it was missing persons. We didn't even investigate it as a homicide. For six years, it wasn't investigated. There's no casework done on this for six years. No crime scene photographed. No single piece of evidence recovered. He moved before we ever started investigating it. I go to my property room. There's not a single piece of evidence in the property room. So how did we convict him? In four and a half hours. And by the way, he did confess to the entire thing at sentencing. He did confess to it and gave us the location of the body. But how do we do it? Because his story changed over time. He said one thing in 81, another thing in 87, another thing in 96, another thing in 2010. If your story is changing over time, there's a good chance I shouldn't trust you. Is the story of Jesus changing over time? Let's go back to our crime scene. Here's our courtroom. How do I know what happened in these 330 years to that document? Let's go to a regular crime scene in a regular courtroom and talk about an analogy there. I'll put a piece of evidence in the crime scene. I'm going to put a casing. Do you see it? Here's the same casing, allegedly, at the courtroom. How do I know that this casing was actually at the crime scene? How do I know I haven't tampered with it? Well, one way to do it is to, check, is to say, hey, you know, how do I even look at this and know that, say, for example, some evil detective didn't come along 10 years later and drop this into the property? If that happened, it was never at the crime scene, but inserted into property late... Couldn't then somebody following this guy not know any better and work it like real evidence? The next guy comes along, he thinks it's real evidence, he brings it into the courtroom. Now I've got a piece of evidence in my trial that was never even at the scene, or if it was there, it was totally different in terms of its form. Any little extractor mark, anything you're trying to take out of it evidentially, it wasn't even part of the original casing. How do I know? Couldn't something similar happen to the gospel, let's say, of John? Some gospel is written, John's or Mark's or Matthew's, but it's very simple. And then later on, of course, we're going to submit this to the council. This is the allegedly reliable eyewitness account. 
But how do I know how many times in history, maybe many times in history, somebody either intentionally or unintentionally altered the text until finally whoever follows them has no idea it's been altered hundreds of times, trots that into the council as though it's the legitimate gospel of whatever, when in fact it's been modified hundreds of times. That was my suspicion all along. Now, I know how to deal with this in crime scenes. It's pretty simple. What you do is you go in and you say, look, is there an officer at the scene back in 1981 who took a picture, a Polaroid, or wrote a really good report in which he describes that, that piece of evidence? Do you guys even know what a Polaroid is? <laughs> Let's do the old person uh, count here. How many know what a Polaroid is? Up high. Let's watch this group age in front of your very eyes. How many do you know this kind of Polaroid? There it is, Polaroid. Very good. Cool, cool. That includes all of you. No problem. How about this kind of Polaroid? Now you're getting older. How about this kind of Polaroid? Now you're just added 10 years to your life, a.k.a. you're older. You feel like you're adding 10 years to life just watching this stupid demonstration, right? Last one. Here we go. Yes, we used to actually put this, the developing solution on the Polaroid. Those are the 70-year-olds in the audience. Everyone raise your hand for 70. Okay, so here we go. Do I have a Polaroid or just a good supplemental report where this officer describes completely what he has at the crime scene? That would be helpful. I get a picture of what was actually there. He then gave it to somebody else who maybe took another Polaroid, wrote his own supplemental report, drove it to the crime lab, took the first 35-millimeter film of this thing. Now we've got it documented. We're examining it to give it back to another guy. He writes a report. He brings it into the courtroom. Now I have many pictures of this piece of evidence over the years, many reports. I can look and see, is it changing over time? This is called the chain of custody. If I have confidence that I can see it over and over and over again and it's not changing, that is helpful. Do I have anything like that for the New Testament? Yeah, I think we do. So let's take a look at the New Testament chain of custody together. Crime scene, courtroom. First officer on scene takes a picture of Jesus. Let's call him John in this case. John takes a picture. How do I know what's in his picture? I got to ask, is there another officer who follows John who he gives his picture to? Maybe they'll take a picture of his picture. Wouldn't that be cool? Then I would know if that picture has changed at all. Turns out he has three students. These three students are named as Ignatius, Papias, Polycarp. These guys became leaders in the church in their own right and took a picture of Jesus based on what they were taught by John. Lucky for us, they became leaders because they wrote to the local churches. And Ignatius, for example, wrote seven letters. Looking at the most redacted forms of these letters, we can get a clear image of the Jesus that he was taught by John. Not only that, he's going to reference many of the canonical gospels and letters of Paul in his writings. So don't anyone tell you, well, I think that was... Look, the guys in the very first level of chain of custody are talking about these documents. They're referencing these documents. Come on. Papias, unfortunately, we don't have anything left from Papias. We've lost most of his stuff. But Polycarp, here he is, and he writes to one church in Philippi, and he also describes Jesus the way it was taught to him by John. And it turns out these three also had a student named Irenaeus. Now we're moving down in history. We can look at Irenaeus's work to see if Jesus is changing again, another Polaroid of Jesus. And it turns out that Irenaeus describes the 24 books he considers reliable that he's using to teach his students. One of his students was named Hippolytus, who again writes about Jesus and describes the same 24 books that he considers to be, uh, actually there's some modification of which 24 books. This is now being collected and used. Don't let anyone tell you the canon was affirmed or written late in history. It was affirmed late in history, but used from the very first century on. Now, I, unfortunately, I can't find somebody after Hippolytus, but look at Paul's chain of custody through First Clement. 
through the Roman bishopry to Tatian. It stopped short also. But look at Peter's chain of custody through Mark and the North African bishops and the school at Alexandria all the way to Eusebius. We have many pictures of Jesus, Polaroids, supplemental reports to examine, to compare to one another, to see, is Jesus changing over time? Has the evidence been corrupted? And they're in three different locations. They're in Ephesus, I mean Rome, Ephesus, and North Africa. These didn't, they couldn't just like text each other, sorry. They couldn't call, hey, what are you saying about Jesus? No, they had to actually, they were separated by thousands of miles. This this is a problem. I think when you see this picture repeatedly, you can have confidence because if you lost all of the original documents from the biblical authors and all you had were the first century chain of custody second officers and you wanted to build your case for Jesus from just these guys, what would you know about Jesus? I think most skeptics would not be comfortable with this description of Jesus because it's identical to the biblical canonical scripture of Jesus, uh, description of Jesus we have today. Born of a virgin, taught great sermons, worked miracles, claimed to be God, demonstrated his deity by dying on a cross and rising from the grave, ascending into heaven, through whom in faith alone you are saved. That is the earliest testimony in the chain of custody written early and repeated often. You're stuck with that form of Jesus. But how can we know that this form of Jesus is reliable? Maybe these people are so biased, they're just lying to us for some cause. They're making this stuff up. Okay, it's early. Okay, it doesn't change. But how do we know why they're doing it? What's motivating them to do this? That's a good question, I think. You can't trust this last area on bias, and we'll finish with this today. You go to these domestic violence cases, and you get there, and she's got bumps and bruises, and he's got bumps and bruises, and he says that she did it, and she says that he did it. He should go to jail. No, she should go to jail. Who do you think goes to jail tonight? Yeah, both of them go to jail tonight. Let the detective tomorrow figure it out, right? If I'm the patrol officer, I just want to go home. So you have to take... Why do you do that? Because you can't trust either one of them. Each one is biased against the other and wants to get the other one in jail. They're angry. Well, how do we know that something similar doesn't happen Remember, bias is driven by motive, and motive comes down to three things. There are only three motives between, behind any homicide. Only three motives behind anything you've ever done wrong in your life. Only three motives behind a lie, even the lie that allegedly the apostles would tell. Only three motives, and they come down to these three things repeatedly. One, financial greed. Two, lust, relational lust, sexual lust. And three is the pursuit of power. Everything breaks down into some subset of these three. So if I'm looking at a murder scene, I don't go in and say, oh, there's a thousand reasons why this could have happened. No, there are three reasons why it could have happened. You find me a suspect in one of those three categories, we're in business. We're off to the races. What is motivating the 12? It can only be one of these three things. Is it financial? Are they getting rich off this scheme? No. Are they getting girlfriends off this scheme? No. Maybe they're getting power and status within a Christian community. That would be enough for some people. Really, Paul, who had status and power within his religious community as an obedient Jew who was tasked with persecuting this renegade bunch of Christians, he now decides he's going to abandon his power and authority to try to develop power and authority with the persecuted group? Uh, Okay, it's possible. I don't think it's reasonable. Especially when you see how it is these folks suffered for what they claimed. By the way, if you claimed you would die for what you believe is a Christian today, how much evidential value would that have? Let me show you. Zero. Lots of people will die for what they don't even know is a lie. But if you were somebody who said you saw it firsthand as an eyewitness, and you were willing to die for this claim, how much evidential value would that have? Much more. 
And that appears to be the history of the apostles. Now, I'm not here to tell you. I'm pretty skeptical about history and skeptical about lots of things. And I'm not here to tell you that these descriptions about how the apostles died are uniformly accurate and reliable. Many of these traditions are late in history. They just are. And some of these are better than others. I can trust more what happened to Peter and Paul than I can trust, say, what happened to Philip, given the textual evidence, historical evidence. But I know this for sure. There is no first century record in which any of the 12 are ever reported to recant their testimony. There are lots of historical records uh, in the second century in which non-witnesses, non-eyewitnesses, the second level of Christians recanted to save their own lives. But these 12 never did. They died alone without any financial success, and didn't even have the power to control the way they died. Pretty gutsy, especially when it's all just a lie. I know that Tim talked about this last week a little bit. Well, in with this. How can you trust what the Gospels claim as history when you know they're written by Christians? You can't trust them. Well, look, if you're working robbery homicide, if you're not working a homicide, you're working a robbery, like this bank robbery. Here's a guy who comes in. He shows the victim a demand note, a gun. She sees that stuff. She's like, give him the money now. The demand note and gunner are now both back in his pockets, and she's now paying him. And it turns out when he first walked in, this young lady saw him and recognized him immediately from high school. Oh, bummer. Picked the wrong bank. <laughs> he's standing in line, doesn't even see her. She figures, I'll talk to him after he's done with this transaction because she had a customer. It's all busy in the bank. But sure enough, before she can get to say hi to him, she looks over at her coworker and she sees that her coworker's being robbed. And this young lady was shocked by what she was seeing. I know she was shocked because it says so right here. <laughs> I put that on there as a reminder that, yes, she's shocked. But she's shocked because she knew this guy from high school. And in high school, this is the last person she would ever have assumed would do such a thing. Nice guy, stellar student, great athlete, serves on ASB. This guy is the real deal of a list of all my potential robbery suspects. This guy's at the bottom of my list. But now here he is doing a robbery right before her eyes. Do you think I should go and talk to her afterwards and see what she has to say about this crime? I don't think I can trust Kathy at all. She thinks that Robert Smith is a bank. You know, she's a Robert Smithian. You can't trust Robert Smithians to tell you the truth about Robert Smith. Do you see how stupid that is? It's not as though she starts off with a bias believing Robert Smith is a bank robber. She ends up with a reasonable inference, with a conviction about the truth based on observation. She didn't even want to think it was true, but here it is in front of her own eyes. Compare her, for example, I think she's reliable, number one, but compare her, for example, with somebody like, um, like Matthew. Do you think Matthew thinks that Jesus from the get-go is the Messiah? I mean, he's not part of the 12. He's, doesn't have, he's like the reviled tax collector. He's not part of the John the Baptist crowd. You know, he's doing his work, and Jesus taps him on the shoulder and says, dude, let's do three years together. And during those three years, he sees some stuff that is like, mind, that nonsense is mind-blowing. At the end of that, He's convinced on the basis of observation. He didn't start off with a bias. He ended up with a conviction based on observation. Very different. I can now go to him, I think, and trust. Could I trust what this guy says? Uh, I don't think so. Got lots of good reasons not to trust him. But when it comes to making a case for whether you can trust what the scriptures say about Jesus, including the resurrection, I think it's a little bit different. But we build the case the same way. We ask ourselves, how do we make witnesses reliable? How do we know? And we ask, do we have enough evidence to even think this is written in an early time? I think we have good evidence and good reason to believe that this is, they were present. How do we know, for example, though, that these are going to be verified? We didn't talk about any of this. That's a talk in itself. But I think at the end of that, I was, okay, they're corroborated. I get that. 
But how about accurate? I think we talked a little bit about transmission over the years, chain of custody. And finally, how do we know that we can trust what was told us? Well, these people are willing to die for their claims, and I don't see the kind of bias I would expect or motive I would expect for people who would lie about this. We make a case the same way. When these four areas point to the same conclusion, I can conclude that this is a reliable document. But my problem as a non-believer was that I was a supernatural, I was a, basically a philosophical naturalist. I don't believe in the supernatural. I reject that stuff before we even get there. But if you're like me and you're in this audience right now and you reject the supernatural, remember, this is an investigation about whether or not the supernatural is true. You're trying to discover whether or not something supernatural, God, exists. You don't begin that kind of an investigation by rejecting the supernatural out of hand. Your presupposition will never allow you to come to the truth. At least suspend that until you do the work. Now you're stuck, though, with the Jesus who can rise from the dead, who's attested to very early by people who were willing to die for this claim. Wow, what did I do with that? I think if you look at this guy and you ask the same questions you asked of the other suspect in this case, I come to different answers. And I hope as we're thinking about this together today, you might come to different conclusions as well. If you're in this room and you're a one-decision Christian, you've decided to trust Christ with your life, great. But if you're a zero-decision Christian, what are you waiting for? I had to ask myself at some point, is it a matter of how much evidence there is or is it a matter of me not wanting to accept it no matter how much evidence there is? Where are you? There are good reasons not to check your brain at the door and make this reasonable conclusion. If you're a one-decision Christian in here right now and you trust Christ for your salvation, why haven't you taken the additional step to learn this? so that your Christianity won't be accidental. You might be in the truth and not even know why you're in the truth. Those days are gone, folks. We're in a post-Christian world. We are called to make a case for what we believe. And we can. Take the time to do it, to learn it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And most of the time, I can find stuff to do other than think about you. I can't find a way to spend this afternoon without thinking about you, without studying, without wanting to know what the truth is or how I could even describe the truth to others. Father, I just need to repent. Even myself, I know there are lots of ways that I waste an afternoon or a day or a week or most of my life. Forgive me, Father. And if there are people in this room who are ready to start the investigation, would you please move in there right now? Move. You have your spirit just... Struggle with them to start the investigation, to take a look at the evidence. We love you, Father. We want to worship you with more than our songs. We want to worship you with our minds. We see that as the most accurate, the most uh, difficult kind of worship there is. Father, motivate us to be that kind of worshiper. We love you. We pray this in the name of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.